HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. HRN is food radio supported by you. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network for 10 years. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. You're listening to Fields, the podcast. I'm Wythe Marshall. And I'm Melissa Metric. On Fields, we're bringing you the stories of people who are working in the world of urban agriculture. For money, for fun, for art, for justice, to feed the hungry, to green the city, or to uncover its history. In each episode of Fields, we'll delve into one kind of food that's grown in cities, one technology used to grow, or one project that teaches us something about our relationship to farming in urban environments. Moreover, we'll investigate all the whys behind getting up in the morning and working as a farmer in the city today. You don't need to be a farmer to enjoy this podcast, or even a foodie. We're going to tell fascinating stories and break down the realities and possible futures of urban farming to their elements. Welcome to Fields, the unfinished story of urban agriculture with... Hi, I'm Melissa Metric. And I'm Wythe Marshall. And today we're joined by a very special guest... Lee Ullman. Thanks for joining us, Lee. I'm so happy to be here with you both. Yeah. It's been a long time uh, coming. We've we've interacted in several different ways um, in the NYU Extended um, Cinematic Growing Things universe. Uh, And I know you have a new project I want to know more about. um, So that's one reason we invited you on today. But in general, just to talk about uh, some of our favorite things, right? Mycology, biodiversity, and sort of broadly, urban ag. And seeds. Seeds. We'll also talk about seeds. Sorry. We're always talking about seeds. (laughs) Kind of true. Um, and also, it's very exciting. We're actually in the Heritage Radio studio. We haven't been here. It's for so a exciting. Long time. Yeah, it smells like, like a year. cedar in here. It smells great. Looks great. People are having fun eating we pizza could, outside. We could watch people eat. Yeah, there's <laughs> a voyeuristic, gastronomic voyeuristic thing happening. A little fishbowl situation. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Very pleasant. Um, yes. Well, Melissa, yeah, do you want to kick it off? I mean, sure. Um, well, Lee, thank you so much for joining us. We're really excited that you're here. And, um, yeah, and I guess we, we wanted you exactly what wife said, um, on the show for a couple reasons for all the projects that you're kind of working on. Um, but I guess, uh, where to start, uh, might be mycology and, um, and well, maybe I'll just give a little kind of quick, um, introduction. So um, Lee and I work very close at NYU. Um, uh, 
Lee kind of helped start the NYU Mycology Group. Um, she also helped start the NYU Seed Library. Um, Lee also does a lot of work with Cornell Small Farms um, with the mushroom like mycology section of that. Um, and then also we want to hear about all of um, Lee's present projects that she's working on. So definitely um, this is uh, this is a person who wears a lot of hats and does a lot of projects and just a lot of really interesting things within Urbag and also kind of this intersection of rural and urban. So um, hopefully that was an okay introduction. But <laughs> Yeah, Lee, do you want to add anything there? Do you want to introduce yourself? <laughs> that was great. I don't think you missed anything, really. Um, I just feel lucky that I, I do get to work with you, Melissa, a lot at the NYU Urban Farm Lab. And that's been a really fun play space for me um, since uh, during my time in the food studies program at NYU. And so, yeah, as you mentioned, it's been really great to build community there around um, fungi and, and mycology and also seeds. There's a lot of alignment in those two spaces for me. So yeah, I'm happy to, happy to dive in wherever you want me to. Yeah. So maybe we could start with, um, you know, when you first came to the food studies program, you were already growing mushrooms. So, um, maybe we should start there of like how you got interested in growing mushrooms, um, you know, um, moving from rural to urban, that type of thing. But maybe just your experience, A, growing your own mushrooms and then, you know, starting to work on a mushroom farm and all that other stuff and then bringing it into the urban. Does that sound good? That sounds great. Yeah, it really all started for me in 2018. And I did not really grow up farming or cultivating mushrooms weren't fungi wasn't really on my radar seed saving was not on my radar um but one thing led to another and i decided to take a break from what i was doing um sort of corporate world and pursue farming um and check out all different types of farming techniques and see where i could fit in and um, specifically with mushrooms, and a lot of people say this, they just kind of ended up finding me. All of a sudden, like it seemed like everything was about mushrooms in some way. So I was working at a farm and living at this farm, and I met this person who was really into growing mushrooms. And she started talking to me about how, you know, if I had access to woodlands, which I, I kind of did up in the Hudson Valley, that that would be a really interesting thing to start doing. So that was kind of in the back of my mind. But I, you know, when I came back, I kind of at first thought, well, that was at a farm. It's not something, I don't know if I can actually do this. Um, and then I started farming up there and I met another person who gave me this book by Eugenia Bone called Mycophilia, which is a really great book and kind of introduced me to this whole community of people. So that piqued my interest. I met somebody else who, um, his whole family was just growing, um, shiitake logs in their driveway. And it just started to seem like a much more accessible thing that people were doing. And okay, I could do this. I could experiment with this. So I ended up taking a mushroom cultivation workshop online um, with Steve Gabriel, the Cornell Small Farms Program, which fast oh. forward now, I'm, I'm helping to teach that class yeah. to other people, which is a really nice, like full circle. And I just kind of, I, I remember talking to the farmer that I was working with on the vegetable farm at the time. And he said, you know, and I asked him for advice and he said, you just have to jump in and start doing it and start experimenting. And so that's what I did. I threw a big party with a bunch of my friends and a mushroom inoculation party. And I was kind of off to the races and I went big. I mean, I started with like 
150 logs. Whoa. Um, yeah. Cause I was like, if I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this. So, um, but it was really fun and I really just loved that community aspect of it. And that really set me off. And then I, I worked at an indoor farm for a little while and I started this, I uh, joined the community mushroom educators program with Cornell yeah. small farms and so on and so forth. So but can we back up? You yeah. had 150 shiitake logs. Yeah. Did you sell the mushrooms? Or did you uh, give it all away? Did you eat it? What did you do? That's a lot of mushrooms, right? Well, so the, some people who were there, um, well, I kind of took care of them because it takes a while. Yeah. And then uh, I would give logs to some people who helped me out. And I was selling mushrooms here and there. And I, I still do that a little bit, um, just, you know, on a very informal basis. Or sometimes if I have um, a bunch of shiitakes, I'll just drop them off to a local restaurant. And sometimes I'll just give them away. Um, so it just depends. I, I originally thought that, and this ties into some of the other work that I'm involved with, that I would be this mushroom farmer. And I, I sort of realized that, especially um, in the type of method that I was interested in, outdoor farming, that would be, I'd have to have like 4,000 logs or something. Whoa, so, really? Or okay. a lot, 400, you know, at least 400 yeah. um, to, you know, to be yeah, so at, it's a at scale, least viable. It's a scale, a scale thing. Issue. So... Um, and that's a whole nother conversation, but yeah, that's this conversation. Mm. It's no, this conversation. Yeah. I mean, I, which way you want to go? You know, we talked we talked with a mushroom farmer who had a small indoor farm and went whole hog, just like all she was going to do was do this startup and it didn't pan out. And it's, so it's just really interesting in, in an earlier season. So we're, I'm very curious about kind of the business of it and like, um, some of the, the math you were doing about around like this is or isn't both like lucrative, but also fun, like something you actually want to do. So anyway, it's just something to come back to, like how how the, the business side versus the joy of like learning how these organisms grow yeah. and how to make them more delicious or like all the, all the ways you, like you said, you gave them away, which is very cool. In addition to selling some. Well, but I mean, and that wasn't the original, t you know, like I, I kind of was figuring out and I actually, it was an interesting perspective for me to have working at an indoor farm that mm -hmm. was a commercial farm mm -hmm. where I was, it wasn't my farm, but I had the option of maybe growing into that and experiencing what that's like versus the kind of you know, mushroom farming I'm doing now out, outdoors, which is a different. Yeah. So can you talk a little bit about that experience of growing indoors and, and the differences that you felt? Yeah. Or so, saw? Yeah. I mean, there were, there were a lot, I mean, you can control your environment. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> and there's, so there's a lot of different, um, ways to, to do that. I think I really, what I enjoy about outdoors is being part of that full life cycle of growing um, the mushrooms. And when you're indoors, a lot of um, indoor cultivators um, will actually get their blocks in from somewhere else. So you're basically getting these blocks. They have, they're a mix of carbon and nitrogen, um, like a sawdust and some other um, nutrients for the mushroom to basically and they're very they have to be produced in a sterile lab because trichoderma is like a big problem and um so anyway a lot of commercial farms a lot of the mushrooms that you're buying off the shelf in the supermarket are coming from these blocks and most of them there's a lot of supply chain issues involved with that i don't know if you heard about that but a lot of them come from you know there's maybe like one or two producers in this country or a lot of them are coming from um, overseas. And so it's just a different experience. You're getting these blocks and you're, you know, you're, they're going into the refrigerator and then you're putting them out, um, in your grow room and you're really just involved in the sort of fruiting aspect. Yeah. So you're not even like really inoculating. You're not inoculating. Yeah, so you're not doing that whole process. Like when you had your inoculation party for, um, 
for the shiitakes, like this is no inoculation. You're just already have the inoculated bags. You got them from somewhere else, and then you're putting them in the fruiting chamber. In this particular situation, which is not to say there's there's plenty of joy in in that situation as well, um, and it's really fun to play with. Um, you know, humidity levels and figuring out what there's all sorts of issues that come up and challenges and really working also with a lot of different strains. That was always so interesting to me um, about this um, particular farm I was working at. Um, And also I started working at this farm in the middle of the pandemic as well, which was another interesting aspect. Um, And because at that time, you know, everyone was kind of didn't want to be around anyone else. It was basically me alone in this grow chamber. You and the mushrooms. It was just me communing with the mushrooms. So in that way, it was a real positive for me, right? Because I was just surrounded by these mushroom, fruiting mushrooms and observing the different ways that they were growing. And and that was actually really a a saving grace for me at a really weird time. So So which kinds of mushrooms were you growing? Um, in the farm, different types of oyster mushrooms, shiitakes, lion's mane. Um, that's mostly what we did. Um, different varieties of that. I think we had like piopinos maybe or something like that. Um, but yeah, and then I, um, in my outdoor growing situation, I'll do um, shiitake oysters. Those are the more prolific ones and different strains of that. I've been trying Lion's Mane. I've been getting a lot of turkey tail, Mm. which has been really great. Yeah. And I've been trying to cultivate my Taki as well, which is very difficult. So I have not been successful yet, but I'm going to keep trying. Yeah. Keep at Well, and where was this farm? This, the indoor farm was in in New York city or another place? Um, in Hudson Valley, um, in, um, it's called Rock City Mushrooms, really great farm. Um, and, uh, yeah. And, my outdoor growing situation is also not very far from there um, in Ghent. So Got it. So that's that kind of background, like how you got into this world of like you and the mushrooms all day, every day. Right. <laughs> so I was I was just kind of stuck up there. And, yeah. um, you know, I I really just wanted to, you know, get have a, you know, have a different cultivation experience and kind of get away. And um, I had met this farmer and they needed some extra hands. So I jumped right in. So, Lee, we did um, realize that you mentioned something called trichoderma. And for those folks who aren't that familiar with mushrooms and growing mushrooms, what is trichoderma? Trichoderma. Um, it is. It's so funny because I know um, Halloween is coming up. And I, I know. Think yeah. Somebody, I I, who was it that for their Halloween costume? That it was, was brilliant. Like, it was somebody so, at Small Holds. Yeah. I think. So it was a Small Holds, Small Holds mushroom company. And some, they, they had a Halloween party. And yes, yeah, somebody was trichoderma because it's like the mushroom girl's like, worst fear. Exactly. It's, I love it. Anyways, dorks. So, no, I know. <laughs> That's just an aside. Um, trichoderma. So there's, I mean, there's spores, fungi all around us all the time. And if you're cultivating, you really want to minimize um, all of these competing fungi because they're going to compete um, with the mushrooms that you do want to grow for a food source, right? And the most common, the most prevalent one of those is trichoderma. So it's that sort of green, sometimes bluish thing that you will see often. And it's actually not really harmful to humans. And a lot of um, growers, especially if you're experimenting at home and you might, might see a little bit of that on your growing medium, it's, it's okay. You definitely don't want it on your mushroom. Um, but 
it's it's pretty prevalent and a lot of times you know it can take over a grow room and then mm-hmm. you have to deep clean and which i've had to do before and it's not fun and it's costs money you know time and money yeah. if you're a grower so you really and that's again as i was saying before the one of the reasons why a lot of um, cultivators choose to um, ha- bring in blocks because somebody else is dealing with creating this highly sterile environment mm-hmm. and minimizing their their risk. Yeah, because if you're inoculating your like little grow cubes, your your um, blocks yourself, then there is so much more of a chance that it could get contaminated with an outside, you know, fungus like trichoderma. It is a fungus. Is that a yeah. fungus? Yeah. Um, like trichoderma or something else. So, yeah, so that kind of makes sense. And just take over your whole operation. Yeah. So it's a risk that a lot of people don't want to take. Because I actually remember when we were, um, well, I remember like in season one, we were interviewing Andrew from Small Hold, mm-hmm. and he was talking about when they first started Small Hold or when he first started growing, he was trying to inoculate his own blocks, and he noticed that like there was a huge problem with trichoderma, and he was like, "Where is it coming from?" <laughs> he would like totally freak it's everywhere. out. Everywhere, <laughs> yeah, no, it's yeah, it's an interesting supply chain, and they, and they've and he's talked about that that Small Hold is kind of a middleman company in a way, um, but it sounds like the the same at Rock City and most commercial grows where you're buying blocks. And then you're growing them, and that's hard, and, and there's a lot to do there to sort of get the flavor right or, or whatever. But you're not necessarily, like, even if you know how to do it, it may not be worth it. I can't speak, I don't yeah. know Smallhold's present operations. They're yeah, quite, exactly. They've expanded a lot. Yes, so even they since could be totally ago. different now. But at least it makes sense for some growers that you just would, even if you were very good at it, it's just not your job. Like, you, your job is growing the mushrooms, whereas someone else is handling all that clean, sterile work um, mm-hmm. with inoculation. And yeah, it is, it is very, in some ways it's very different, but it actually does make me think of the way, um, for example, breeding pigs or like chickens, like when you need more of an animal, it's actually pretty <laughs> divorced from raising the animal for meat. Um, it's like a completely separate clean. It's like very similar. It's just like all about not having anything get in there to kill the animal mm-hmm. that is so expensive, like a, a, um, a pig that's going to create more pigs. They're like worth tons and tons and tons of money because they're worth all of mm. the pigs they're going to give birth to over their life cycle. So there, I read a great chapter uh, by an anthropologist named Alex Blanchett about this, about how you have to like never ever startle them. You're not allowed to like bond with them or ever like, dis- you can't do anything to emotionally like compromise them because they're always pregnant. And if they lose any pregnancies, that's like huge lost money. So it's really interesting. It's all about keeping them clean and healthy and just calm. Uh, and it's it's bizarre. I mean, it so really is like So do they like give them CBD or something? They like give are them they drugs? drugs? Yeah, they like they drug them up. I don't remember the names, but I could look and tell you. It's like they give them equivalent of like pig Xanax. What or whatever. kind of pig is this? This is like if you eat a pig, the pig you ate was some other pig gave birth to it, right? So someone yeah. controls the supply chain for those pigs, right? They they breed the pigs that make more pigs, and that is similar. It's like it's like a different operation. It's not like yes. meat. Yeah, that's all gotcha. I'm saying. And so there's yes. this weird kind of way in which a lot of these supply chains um, for big for a lot of crops, even in mushrooms, is not a bigger, I mean, it's a much smaller crop, but, but they're broken up in this way. Um, mm-hmm. it's just, there's something there. I, I don't know. I'll think on it. Very curious about pigs now. We can, yeah, we could Ducks talk to some pigs. urban pig growers. I don't know. I don't know any, uh, maybe not legal. I think we established that. Um, nope, no hooves animals, but okay. Back to mushrooms. Yes. So, okay. No trichoderma in, in your house, uh, at that time. Yes. So, so yeah. Well, but I'm also, so that's indoor, but you know, when you're outside, who knows what's going to happen? Well, it's a different ballgame, but yeah. you're, what you're doing there is 
<clears throat> you're trying to introduce enough of the mycelium at the, at the right time. So you're, you're using fresh cut, you know, wood, mm-hmm. um, you're inoculating it with a higher ratio of mycelium so that, and then you're, you're, um, really trying to cultivate that particular mycelium of the mushroom that you want to grow. So yes. it will outcompete everything else. And then once it's in there, it's hard and it does happen. I've had some contamination and the shiitakes, mostly my shiitake legs will still fruit. It's just it might slow it down, but mm-hmm. yeah. Okay. Um, so if you could tell us, um, kind of now moving into like the urban, mm-hmm. um, the Cornell small farms and how you got involved with them. And also, I guess, you know, the NYU mycology group, cause that's like in between there. Yeah. 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 So it's it's all sort of, you know, uh, feeds on on each other. Um, So the Cornell Small Farms Program, I had taken some workshops and then through that, um, they started this really great program called the Community Mushroom Educator Program. And you could apply to be part of a cohort. There's two cohorts now um, uh, to learn how to teach cultivation techniques in your community. And this was both um, urban and, you know, anywhere in New York. And now it's actually expanded to anywhere in the country. Our last cohort was sort of all over the place, which is great. And we should just share resources and best practices. Um, so, you know, I've been doing that. And then also when I got, when I started, um, the food studies program at NYU, I, you know, when I got there, um, there was already a couple of students, Ben Blaustein and Nathan Sheraton, shout out to you guys, um, (laughs) who had set up this grow room um, in the food studies department in an office cubicle. It was, it's just so cool. In 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 my office. In (laughs) your office, Melissa, you know all about it. It was really, it was really, it's the urban agriculture room. So it's not really my office. I'm an adjunct, but yes, yes. But that is where you will most likely find Melissa and she will be sitting there with this grow chamber (laughs) mushrooms right behind her. Um, And so they had started to grow and I I just thought that was so cool. And they kind of let me in the circle and we actually had to um, apply uh, to have this club. And at first the university was a little, they didn't want us to be encouraging people to eat mushrooms that they just found, understand, you know, Um, but we kind of um, convinced them that, you know, this university, like I think any university, should would, could really benefit from creating a space for people from all disciplines to engage in conversations and collaborations around fungi because fungi touches on pretty much every subject. And it's been really interesting to see that grow. So we um, finally got our application approved. We got this university-wide club. And, you know, within a month, we had hundreds of members. Um, And the membership continues to grow. And it's really exciting. Not just uh, students, but faculty as well are interested. And there's been some really um, interesting collaborations and um, partnerships. We've worked with the New York Mycological Society. We've had um, the Pac Fungi community come speak to our group. We've had Catskill Fungi. Um, we've had lots of different really interesting um, programs, and it continues to grow, so it's exciting. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. Um, and then, yeah, so your work now with Cornell, um, what's going on with that now? So um, it's still going strong. Yeah. Um, we, um, I'm also, so that cohort is sort of winding down and it's been really fun to hear about all the different community projects, how they're bringing, um, mushrooms, not only, you know, out 
in the woods, but into urban spaces and urban gardens. And so there's a lot of really interesting things happening with that. Um, and yeah, so who's growing mushrooms? Like how many out of the cohort were a lot of people actually from urban areas? Yeah, a good portion are. Yeah. Um, you know, there's there's Kelly Street Garden, which I think is one in the original cohort, and they're do they've got some great um, mushrooms, both growing mushrooms in the garden beds, but also some really cool mushroom chambers, indoor mushroom chambers Ooh, that they've been cool. working on. Um, yeah, I think there's, especially with varieties like wine cat mushrooms, mm -hmm. which are really great for soil builders and, um, you know, they do really well with other plants and growing on, on mulch. So a lot of folks are, are putting that in their gardens, composting. There's a lot of interesting things happening with mushrooms and composting. Mm -hmm. Certainly at the urban, the NYU urban farm, we're doing a lot yeah, with, with mushrooms there, Wait, which has I, been fun. I have to do a check-in. Mm -hmm. uh, so there's wine cap kind of growing everywhere and, and oh, they've spread. Too much? They're not. No, it's fine. It's like, but it's like mostly growing in the paths and not in the bed where we put them in. Oh, funny. Which is like really interesting. I'm like, how did you get here? And I just love it because I feel like they find their own way. They're like, you know what? We want to be under the scaffolding, not directly under where the water pours out, but kind of right next to it. And we also want to pop up like right by the faucet where water comes out, but not directly on there. So it's like, it's really interesting how they're just like, you know what? You may want us to be over here, but we want to be over here. So, well, my, I mean, mushrooms I are my slings really intelligent, yeah. right? It, it kind yeah. of, it knows where it wants to go and, um, yeah. So. And also, can you just explain wine cap really quickly? Because yes. that's such a great one to grow in the city, especially in like, you know, garden beds. Yeah. Stuff. Wine cap mushrooms are actually one of my favorite mushrooms to eat. They are quite delicious hmm. and they're also really beautiful. They have this like reddish rust color cap and then they're their gills are sort of this like purplish brown, um, and they can get huge. They really can. Yeah, you sent me a picture <laughs> like one day. Like the size day. of a portobello. It was it's bigger crazy. than your hand. <laughs> um, and I like them because they're really great for um, the soil, um, and they're so easy to grow and really, really great are. to experiment with. You can grow them in your garden. You can grow them in a bucket. I mean, you can really experiment with them. And, and like you were saying, they're really hardy. They will just find their way. And they're really easy to share. You know, they like to. So if you have a wood chip that has mycelium growing on it, mycelium like looks like this like little white stuff mm -hmm. that you'll see. And you'll see it everywhere. It's like everywhere underground um, all the time, which is another interesting thing to think about. Um, but you could take that and give that, you know, little one piece of wood chip with mycelium to somebody else that they could put in their garden and it'll yeah It'll find its own. and just like a, a little quick review uh mycelium <laughs> is okay. the body of so the mushroom is the fruiting body of the of you know the fungi and the mycelium is the actual body of the mushroom that usually grows underground right lee is that a good yeah, description I, how would you describe it someone i'm like really digging this analogy lately so i'm gonna say it yeah, um, yeah. someone said that mycelium is kind of like a tree it's sort of always growing and then the mushroom is the fruiting body is like the apple on that tree yeah yeah, right? yeah it's like the upside down and um show by netflix that we won't get sued by mentioning or whatever but right. yeah it's like there an upside go. down <laughs> arboreal setting so the the, the like, mycelium really? is like uh it looks like a root <laughs> but it functions like the tree and then yeah it fruit the fruit comes up instead of falling down yeah i, love I like that. that a lot yeah. um 
so so wine cap yeah no i know now i want to eat some wine cap now i'm hungry um yeah but but lee if you could just wind back so the mushroom educator program that's uh usda funded the community mushroom educator network run by the cornell small farms program is supported by nefa the national institute of food and agriculture of the u.s department of agriculture and SARE, the northeast sustainable agriculture research and education program is that uh, that's that's Yolanda Gonzalez and Steve Gabriel's jam? Is yes. That right? Okay. Cool. Yes. Um, that power team. Super powerful, amazing people, um, and we hope to have them on at some point. Uh, and uh, I was just wondering, could you tell us like more about that program? Because you know, maybe it's interesting to go into like why it's it's not a program to teach people to grow mushrooms per se. It's to teach educators how to teach other people. Yes, right. There's... Which is the interesting. It's like a it's, it's like amplifying the message. Yeah, there's that that there's that layer, right? And um, so, yeah, it's a really diverse group of people who have different communities that they're in and different, um, I'm going to say, end users or audiences that they're trying to engage. So that could be people school, you know, in the schools or at a community garden, um, and or at the university level, wherever. Um, and it's a training program to talk about different learning modalities, right? So really getting into how do you teach somebody this content in a way that's approachable and accessible and what are the tools that you could do that or that you need to do that. Um, it's getting into some of the techniques that are more accessible, things like growing wine caps like we just talked about, mm -hmm. or how can you grow um, oyster on in a to-go container on coffee grounds, or cardboard, or materials that are really accessible. Um, so it's really great. And then also part of that is, um, which I think is really cool, is one of the issues that, let's say, urban growers might face um, is how do you get your hands on materials like logs if you wanted to grow shiitake on logs or straw yeah. if you wanted to grow oyster on that straw? That is such a great point because it's like I cannot tell you how many times it's been like, I want to grow mushrooms. Where am I going to get a log from? <laughs> like, we, seriously. Right. I'm like on Houston Street. Like, right. like, there's no, yeah. It's like, what? I'm going to go the to the park? Bodega, they don't yeah. have vlogs. And then it's like, I'm going to chase somebody down when they're cutting down a tree. And who knows if that's even like the right kind of tree. Totally. So that's a really great point. Yeah. So a cool partnership between the Cornell Small Farms Program, Woodsman Forest Products, Schooner Apollonia, the Hudson River Maritime Museum, the Ready Center, and Red Hook Community Farms is piloting the carbon neutral transport of logs from upstate forests down to community farms and gardens in New York City in order to help cultivate mushrooms. Basically, the program found folks who had some logs um, that they could supply, and they took those logs and put them on a ship down the Hudson River hmm. and brought them to Red Hook. And over two days, the community mushroom educators came and led uh, demos at Red Hook Community Farm. Um, for how to inoculate shiitakes on logs using those logs. And now those logs are in gardens all over the city, including at we NYU. Have some. Yep. Yeah. Oh, that's mm -hmm. so cool. Yeah. Oh, that's really good that, that you guys partnered with Red Hook and, and did that. Yep. Yeah. Yep. They're, and, they're, and it's just great to be able to spread that and to sort of pool resources, come together, see what the need is, and um, yeah, figure out a, a way to yeah. do that. And also use ships for transportation. Yes. Oh, heck yeah. Sorry. It was so cool. There's, if you go to their site, there's a lot of video on just like this ship rolling up with logs well, and people 
bring yeah, them up? Yeah, I mean, I think, I don't know if it's the same ship, but I know there's like a sailboat that comes down that does like transits a lot that yeah. like brings stuff down from upstate to the yeah. city. The name of the boat that transports the inoculated logs is the Schooner Apollonia Sailboat. So why, why do you think people are so interested in fungi and mycology and mushrooms um, nowadays? I mean, because we're talking about educating educators who are going to go to all these different communities, including in many different urban areas, and also, uh, you know, people at NYU starting this club. Um, and it's not new in that, like, the New York Mycological Society is an August institution, but it does feel like it's come back. We talked a little with Smallhold about this um, in the last few years. Like, it's much more in the public consciousness. Like, oh, yeah, mushrooms are cool. They're amazing. They're not just you know, plants, gray plants, they're doing different things. But I mean, Lee, you've worked with all these different species. Like why, why is it? Why are they cool? Oh gosh. I'm so curious. Yeah. It's a good question. And mushrooms are definitely having a moment. Or another question is, um, why like folks within your cohort in Cornell, why did they want to grow mushrooms? Why did they become interested? Like the folks who are in the cohort? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That's a really good way to approach it. Right. Like this is a new program. It's two cohorts in. So like you know, Cornell presumably started it because there was interest. Do you have you heard some stories and have you seen some patterns like why all these people have signed up, the educators, to to learn yeah. more? I think people are interested in learning more about fungi because we collectively, as a community, as a larger community, are just starting to scratch the surface of fungi's roles in our lives and in supporting life on Earth and all of our ecosystems. And as we learn more, we understand the intimate relationship that we already have with fungi. And so being able to name that, being able to participate more actively in our relationship with fungi is, I think, one of the reasons why people get so excited about fungi, one of the reasons why I'm so excited about them. And another reason to engage or why I think we're seeing more engagement with fungi is because we have more knowledge about mushroom cultivation techniques. And I know others in my, in the community mushroom educators network that I'm a part of are really interested in learning mushroom cultivation techniques and developing new mushroom cultivation techniques as a way to feed their communities. And you can, cultivate mushrooms at home pretty easily using materials that are very accessible that you might already have on hand. So that's also been been really exciting. And I think another reason why mushrooms are having a moment. So Lee, uh, we've been talking so much about mushrooms, but we know that's not all what you do. Um, you do so much more. So we would love to um, ask you more about your other work when we come back from break. This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network for 10 years. Roberta's was founded in Bushwick in 2008 and has become one of the most iconic restaurants in the country. HRN made its home inside of Roberta's in 2009, and together they have become part of the DIY fabric of the neighborhood. Roberta's, the pizza restaurant, is open for lunch and dinner seven days a week and serves much more than just the famous wood-fired pizzas. Their team dreams up new salads, pastas, and sandwiches on the regular. Roberta's Tiki Bar is alive and well in the back garden, serving up frozen drinks in the summer and hot toddies in the winter. 
stop by the bakery and takeout spot next door for fresh breads, sticky buns, and pizzas to go. And of course, there's the two Michelin-starred Blanca tucked away in the garden for truly daring diners. But Roberta's also extends beyond Bushwick, with multiple locations in New York City and now in Los Angeles. You can also find their frozen pies in grocery stores around the country. The spirit of Roberta's, like Heritage Radio Network, is everywhere. Here's to many more years of pizza-powered radio. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. Mushrooms aren't the only thing you do, Lee. So um, also wanted to jump into um, seeds and seed libraries and how you got interested in that. Um, also because you were so um, kind of important in starting the NYU Seed Library and you've also been in touch with many seed libraries and many folks who work within the seed world. Um, and yeah, and also you mentioned how mushrooms and seeds are so similar and I'm kind of just like interested in that, in that correlation. So maybe, yeah, maybe you could start with the correlation and then go into how you got into it or that will lead us into that work. Yeah. I mean, I think for me, there's many ways, you know, there's, there's so many unknown fungi out there and it really relies on people like me and you and anybody listening to um, get out there and engage with these fungi and document them and, and try and help us understand what's out there and identify them because there's so much we don't know. And similar with seeds, there's so many different seed varieties that are going extinct because nobody is growing them. And and that saving these seeds really is reliant on me and you and people listening to this podcast to um, really go back and understand, um, you know, where your own history interacts with these beautiful varieties and yeah and in the same way for me how we all interact with fungi internally externally it's all around us and it's really important to our you know physical identities so um there's that overlap and then there's also the supply chain stuff we were talking about earlier right we were talking about how blocks and you know someone who controls where these blocks come from controls sort of the production um from that standpoint and similarly Uh, The seed industry, I mean, you know, more than half of all the seeds are are owned by four pharmaceutical companies pretty much are controlled by them. And what does that do to our food system? So there's like a lot of alignment in in terms of what's happening in our food system there. And so um, all of that kind of came to a head during the pandemic um, when there was really a run on seeds. And if you are interested in agriculture and particularly organic agriculture, um, then, you know, you've got to be interested in, um, regionally adapted seed, um, Mm -hmm. because that is the seed that will help you address climate change and all these other things. And so we need more of that. There's been, there was a run on seeds. And so, um, Melissa, you and I actually sat down and kind of talked about what we could do. And and you had a bunch of seeds that I was cataloging and we, we, we talked about maybe launching a program to not only catalog the seeds that you already had, but you know, how could we get our hands on seeds and, and really encourage people who had, purchase these seeds to, to grow, you know, I mean, I don't know if a lot of people yeah. started growing gardens during the pandemic and, yeah. you know, we were talking about, well, what's going to happen to those seeds and those gardens, you know, after the pandemic, you know, cause yeah. And, and one of the things was Steph Geller from Invincible Summer Farm. She actually donated a bunch of seeds, 
um, she sent them to me um, to distribute them and, and kind of just donate them in general and bring them out to the community because so many folks um, were just interested in, in growing. And that's also just like within urban agriculture in general, the, the ebbs and flows of when people really get interested in growing. And it's like, oh, I'm out of a job and I'm really scared and uh, the grocery store shelf is empty. So what am I going to do right now? Maybe I'll start a garden, right. you know? And then you saw that, you know, the seed companies, um, they, I think the sales in that year in 2000 was like 300% more yeah. than what it usually is, which is just insane. And, and I remember speaking with you, Lee, and we were talking about like, well, all right, so all these beginner, like probably a lot of these people are just starting to grow and, and start these gardens. And if, if they're buying out all this seed and all of this stuff isn't like, you know, being grown or not like people save the seed that much anyways, but it was just like, if, if all these seed companies are selling out, what is that going to do to these small scale growers? And hopefully they're keeping some of that seed and it was just this, I don't know, it was a strange, like, kind of question. And, and that wouldn't make sense in a business standpoint. Like, you wouldn't sell out all yeah, of your you'd, stuff. You'd still have stock. Yeah, you would still have stock. For the next year. But but you but, mean, like, prices? But, like, the prices could go up? Or I don't know. No, I didn't no. Track this. It was more the sense of just, like, people were really selling out. And the access was oh, just, like, So it'd be hard it to get the seed you need if you were, like, exactly. a commercial grower or, like, you yeah. were more serious community was, gardener and then all these random people are like yeah i'll try to grow stuff yeah, yeah it was just kind of crazy well, also as an it was an opportunity right now yeah. all of a sudden you have yeah. people gardening for the first time and if yeah. you're gardening for the first time then like it's a great opportunity to also say great you're you're gardening to to feed yourself but you could also be seed saving because you're there anyway right. right so like let's educate you about this like how to grow these, you know, vegetables, yes. let's say successfully, but also like that there's this other part of the life cycle, how to save these right. seeds so that more of them are going to be available in your community. And guess what? They'll probably be regionally adapted, right? If we teach you how to select for that. And that's, it's so exciting. Yeah. I think, I think a lot of what you're saying, if I could wrap it back yes. at you, yes, it's, yes, it's, yes, yes. as you're talking about basic horticultural literacy in both, you know, in mycology, but also in, in, you know, vegetable gardening, it's sort of the same idea of like a lot of people, even if they're vaguely aware of like, you put a plant in the ground and it grows, whatever, they don't really know how to seed save, even though it's not like technically necessarily that hard. They just have no training. Um, and then with mushrooms, yeah, they have no idea how to approach that, how to get started. And so even if they get into it a little, they watch fantastic fungi, they're like, cool. Right. They don't really know what to do next. So it's like giving them this basic literacy is so important because you think about, we get trained in lots of things. Like a lot of kids now learn to code the computers and they have some basic literacy in like the idea, but we have almost no training for When I, you know, anyway, that wasn't taught like nothing about horticulture, nothing about mycology yeah. was taught in any school I ever went to. So it's so interesting to see how it's like, People are having to make this up, you know? <laughs> well, and also another correlation is is almost like being scared to collect seed. Mm. Like, I'm going to mess it up. Right. Or being scared to grow mushrooms. We like, am I going to kill somebody? Yes. <laughs> you know, like like these two things of like, am I going to mess it up? Can I, can I, like, am I collecting seed at the right time? Like, what, is this going to be like a defunct broccoli? I don't know. Or, or just a sense of like, again, with the fungi phobia or whatever, um, the sense of like, you know, am I going to kill? Cause it's food. So you're a little bit worried about it, but also just the complete 
disconnect or just really how to do that. it because a lot of vegetable seeds are so small and i would be worried about like yeah am i doing it right are they going to germinate but so can you tell us because I, I think there's something also that i want to make sure we get to in the time yeah. we have which is um a project called citizen species right and i think this I relates i said that yeah. i say yeah we can give <laughs> can some can you do my like yeah. promos talked about like why do i don't know in a world uh, no i <laughs> But yeah, I think this relates to what we were just talking about. So maybe, maybe Lee, you can jump in and kind of tell us what you're up to these days. Um, in addition to all these other things, I think you're juggling all of these plates, but adding one more plate. Yeah, well, they're they're all related because there really are. You said it really well, Melissa. Just like accessibility, and you know, and and just really getting people engaged. And so that's how Citizen Species kind of came about. It was, it's a research project. It was, it came out of my own desire to find out what are other people doing in this seed space, what are, you know, how do we get this idea of like eating, um, these beautiful varieties to save them and who's doing that? What's out there? How can other people engage in that? How can, um, people share best practices and just, yeah, make these things more accessible in a very accessible way. So this citizen species is basically just an Instagram account with profiles of people doing this work. Um, from all across the food system. I'm really focusing on New York and urban first because I also think um, there is so much going on here and people don't necessarily think as New York City as a place to grow food and where food that's happening or, you know, native plants and pollinators also important in our food system. Um, and so I thought that would be a really interesting place to start to just remind people of that. Um, and so, yeah, I've been having some great conversations with... Um, the folks over at the Greenbelt Native Plant Center, Randall's Island. The Randall's Island Park Alliance's Urban Farm. That's the name of the farm. Red Hook Farms. Talk to um, the American Chestnut Society. You Ooh. know, New York used to be covered with American chestnuts and that died. You know, they all died. Because they're coming of, back, right? The, well, they're coming back. <laughs> They, it's, why are you? Sorry, do you know no, something just, I don't know? No, no, just the way White said it made me laugh. He's like, they're go- I don't know. No, Sorry. I just love New York. Greatest pizza in the world. Greatest chestnut recovery in the world. No, I don't know. <laughs> um, but yeah, and and anyway, there's and everyone has a different perspective. And like, why isn't why aren't more farmers doing this work? Or what are the challenges? What are the opportunities? And so. Um, that's what I hope it's going to be about. And, you know, um, the NYU has a program that you know a lot about, um, the MAP NYC, which is really doing an amazing job of mapping this information of, of where people are growing food across the city and in very different ways. And we need that information. Um, and I thought, you know, this type of biodiversity angle, you know, what are the different varieties being grown and and what are the people behind some of these statistics Uh, would be an interesting overlay to something like that. Um, And then we also have a lot of other cultural institutions that are really looking into who is growing food in the city, like the Museum of the City of New York. They have a really great exhibition on the future of food um, right now. And so, yeah, it just seemed like a really right time to kind of dig into to some of these um, issues and really, again, highlight this relationship that people, that we humans have with, um, with plants, with fungi, with these varieties that, um, you know, help us, support us, but we also, they also need our support as mm-hmm. well. So can you just highlight one of those varieties, like one of those stories? Oh, yeah. Um, 
Well, I, one that really stuck with me, um, was the, um, Hopness or American groundnut, um, mm. which, um, Patrick over at the native greenbelt center showed me. Um, and it has, um, a rich history in New York. Um, and it has, is a very important, um, indigenous crop. Mm-hmm. Um, and it is basically, um, a, it has a tuber that's that grows to be the size of a potato that you can eat, but it's basically a legume. It's bean, and you can eat the bean and also the leaves. You can pretty much eat every part of this plant, and it mm. also is, like most bean varieties, a nitrogen fixer. Yeah. It's really great um, for developing ecosystems. It's a home to different species of butterflies. Um, and... and- it- and it's originally from this region? Or? Well, it it basically, I from some of the research that I did, I know that it basically was some of the first foods that, you know, um, when they came over, you know, when the pilgrims yeah. came over, like yeah. that's what they ate to survive, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, and they knew about that because of, you know, um, indigenous tribes that were here that had been, um, you know, eating, eating this um Mm. Hopness is also, it's really difficult to cultivate. And Mm. that's, I think, one of the main reasons why um, it hasn't sort of made the jump to, you know, being more widely available on a commercial sort of scale, um, because it's just hard to. Um, Do you know what indigenous groups would would use it and and eat it like within this region or i mean i think it was it's not just in this region yeah yeah yeah. i think um it's pretty prevalent um all along the east coast and okay yeah but so you interview so basically some of the citizen species stories are like focused on specific crops or you're, you're talking to people and and having and sort of highlighting these stories for a mass audience in a fun way that's just at least even raising to popular consciousness like yo this thing exists Here's right. where to get more knowledge about it. Yes. So we could definitely, we could have a whole episode on hotness, but it's, yeah. that's a good example of like, you're doing this with dozens of, of crops. Right? It's, it's about, it's, yeah, it's about the crops, but it's also, it's really about the relationship between the people mm-hmm. and this. So questions that I'm asked are like, why are you, what's your relationship specifically to this crop? Why are you sort of stewarding this crop? What interests mm-hmm. you about this that might interest somebody else about it? Um, so sort of the reasoning that I'm giving you is the reasoning that Patrick kind of shared with me. Um, and then I'll, I'll try and go do a deeper dive or direct people where they can find out more about it. And this is Patrick from the native plant center. Yeah. The Green Belt Native Plant Center. Who is in Staten Island. Sorry. In Staten Island. (laughs) (laughs) Which we talked about last time we were here, Roberta's. Uh, so we only have a few minutes left. So I don't know. I mean, Melissa, do you have a last substantive question? I have like silly questions slash, you know, I always like to ask about climate in the future and things we could talk about for hours, but we only have Ooh, I like, minutes. So. I like those. I think why take it away. Okay. Well, I have lightning round questions. Um, <laughs> I've heard you say, oh. um, so I, is it fungi, fungi, or fungi, or fungi, or other? I'm going to say right. choose your own adventure. Like, really. Also, I, I'm vetoing lightning rounds. <laughs> okay. Just kidding. Uh, lightning round number two. Um, what about so? What about the renewed interest in psilocybin in a therapeutic context, but obviously a popular context? Should it be legal? Is it going to be legalized? Um, I hear it. I hear it will be at some point. From you know, obviously some boosters. Uh, seems like again, why sort of like cannabis? Like why would you have a prohibition against something that's not actually going to kill you? You know. Yeah. 
I, I, I mean, yes. Yeah. I, I think it should okay. be legalized. I know there are people working on it. Good lightning round. And then final lightning round question, um, which, you know, again, is usually something we spend more time on. But what do you think should happen in New York's uh, food system? Or, or really, take it however you want, mm. national, international. Yeah. But, like, what are some positive trends? doesn't have to be at your work or mycology. But, you know, in general, what are some things you want to support or shout out, cool work you're seeing happening? Well, I hope the future is filled with fungi and people who are saving and sharing seeds. And there are just so many organizations out there that, and people, people who have been doing this great work and inspiring me to learn more. One organization I'll mention is New York Mycological Society. They are doing some great work in building community around fungi in New York City and beyond. And I want to give a special shout out to Sigrid Jacob, Ethan Krensen, Sneha Ganguly, and so many others over there. The Mycological Society hosted the first ever Fungus Festival, which brought together hundreds and hundreds of people in Randall's Island to engage with fungi in lots of different ways. My community mushroom educator network that I'm involved with, we did live demos. You had fundus there talking about cataloging different fungi species so that we can learn from them and protect them. Uh, You had John Micheletti of Catskill Fungi talking about his work, and he does some great medicinals. Uh, You had Craig Trester talking about fungi and ecosystems and biomimicry. I mean, the list goes on and on. I can't name everyone here, but it was just so great to be in the company of those all those people celebrating fungi. And in terms of seed saving, there are so many others who are teaching me about this work. Uh, One organization that I visited recently that I'll mention is the Kelly Street Garden in the Bronx. Not only are they at the forefront of figuring out how to grow mushrooms in an urban setting, but they have um, a community apothecary there. They have... Um, and they save seeds. They're growing so many interesting varieties of plants and, and flowers. And it's just really Renee um, and and the whole team over there are so inspiring. And I, you know, if you don't know about Kelly Street Garden, you should check them out. And I will stop there. But I just feel like I'm really in the right place at the right time when it comes to what's going on in the urban agriculture scene here in New York City. And yeah, thanks. I have one last question. Um, Lee, where can we find your work? Oh, well, um, I think uh, one great way to keep uh, tabs on things like the NYU Myco Group and NYC Library is to follow them on Instagram. So... And citizen science. And citizen species. species. Yep. So those are all, um, it's at um, Mycogroup NYU and at uh, NYU Sea Library and at citizen.species. And yeah, I'm always happy to talk to anybody that wants to talk to me about any of these topics that I love so much. So (laughs) please feel free to reach out to me. I can share my contact information with you guys. Great. Great. Thank you so much. Really appreciate your uh, your storytelling and joining us in our storytelling. <laughs> so this thanks a lot fun. for coming out. Let's do this more. I love it. Yay. Yeah, let's do a part two. Yay. Right. But thank you so much for, for coming on late. This, this has been great. A pleasure. And thanks, thanks to uh, all of our listeners and everyone at Heritage Radio Network. Uh, and, and also Matt Patterson for being our engineer today at Heritage. Woo! Yay. Yay. 
Fields is powered by Riverside. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradio.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. And thanks for listening.